Children's Church, which you can find through the door over here by the piano. And I'd invite the rest of you to take a Bible out and open to Luke chapter 9, verse 18. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1026, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. And just a reminder of our Easter uh, celebration this week. Uh, This afternoon, we're meeting here at 2.15 and driving into the city, where we're going to be joining most likely several thousands of other believers from all over the city to pray for the city and pray for revival. So if you're interested in that, be here around 2.15 and we have a bus and we're going to carpool and somehow get in. I don't know how it's all going to work, but it'll work out. It'll be fine. Thursday night is our Maundy Thursday communion service. It's a very somber, reflective service. People say it's, I've heard many people say it's the very favorite service we do all year, where we focus on the crucifixion of Christ. Then there's the family Easter breakfast Saturday morning, which is sold out. So, uh, there's no more room, actually. But you can come uh, later on in the breakfast, after the breakfast is over, to the children's musical. There is room for that. Uh, and then Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, we have the Sunrise service at 6.30 at Stodder's Neck, uh, right on the Hingham-Weymouth line and Route 3A. And then there's three morning services here, 8 o'clock, 9.45, and 11.30. So, in fact, if you want to invite a friend, there's little uh, flyers out in the foyer. You can get one of these. We mailed these out to everyone in Hingham. You could get one and give it to a friend and say, hey, I hope you can come to our Easter morning services if you'd like to invite someone. So, anyway, all that stuff's in your bulletin. Take, take a time to read that. I just want to orient you to that. But today we look at Luke chapter 9. Verses 18 to 22 is our text. Once when Jesus was praying in private and His disciples were with Him, He asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, folks, it's only about one month left until the Da Vinci Code movie hits the theaters. I'm sure you're all waiting with bated breath for this uh, film to be released. Uh, maybe you've read... The, how many people have read the book? I'm interested to know. It's, there you go. It, it was a New York Times bestseller written by Dan Brown. It was on the bestseller list for number one for months and months and months. And uh, if you haven't read the book, uh, book or seen the movie, obviously you haven't seen the movie, I'll just ruin the plot for you. Uh, basically, it's... Uh, the, the premise is that the Roman Catholic Church, and specifically an element of the Roman Catholic Church, the Opus Dei organization, for centuries has been secretly keeping a, a secret. Yeah, they've been suppressing this secret. <laughs> a secret so big that were it to be known, it would you know, overturn Christianity as we know it. And the secret is that Jesus was actually married to Mary Magdalene. That's the story. And he had kids. But the church, in order to keep its stranglehold on power, suppressed this secret because they needed a Jesus who was divine in order to protect the power of the church. And so they've hidden this secret for centuries and now it's coming to light. Uh, And and what's interesting uh, sort of in this whole thing is that the guy, uh, Dan Brown, who's written this book, uh, bases it 
extremely loosely on some historical texts and events. And so he actually, you know, people come away from this book thinking that it's real. And, and I talk to people, and they're like, you know, I, I think there's some real truth to this. You know, I talk to a guy in the gym, and I, I think this is, you know, maybe Jesus really was married. And, uh, and, you know, in fact, Dan Brown was on ABC News several years ago saying, I really believe that this stuff about Jesus is true. So it's kind of like fiction, non-fiction, sort of quasi sort of thing. And just, you know, my take on it is I just don't think it's a big deal. I mean, as far as the history side of it, I'm trying to be kind, but it, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's, it's such a, a poor, ridiculous concoction. Uh, in fact, I went on uh, christianbook.com, and I just typed in Da Vinci Code, and I found over 20 books or pamphlets that have been written since it to refute the, you know, losing the word loosely, historical claims of the Da Vinci Code. You know, why are there over 20 books or pamphlets written? And let me suggest the answer is not because there's a massive conspiracy. Uh, you know, the reason so many books have been written is, frankly, it's such a layup. It's such a softball pitch to, to debunk this book that I think so many people read it and they were like, no way, and then they all rushed, you know, to be the first guy out with the book that debunks it. Because it's just so, I could probably have written it. It doesn't really take that much education just to read the documents and be like, what is he talking about? Um, but, you know, I, I step back from this whole thing, and what I find so fascinating about all of this uh, is that so many Americans do take this seriously, and therefore that the question of the identity of Jesus is still kind of a live question in our culture. People really don't know. I mean, here is arguably the most influential person in all of Western civilization. One could say the whole world history of, of human history. And people really don't know who he is. Who is Jesus? And that's kind of a question people wrestle with today. Uh, so much so that some people, I'm sure, are going to see this movie and that's going to be the most input they've really had on the person of Jesus. And they'll be like, oh, that's probably who he was. Um, and so that's what our text is about. And I thought, you know, what a timely text, not only because of that fact that that question is a live question in our culture, and people will be asking that question in the coming months, but, you know, this is Holy Week. It's all about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And that's what our text is about today. But rather than getting my opinion or Dan Brown's opinion, What's great about this text is that we have Jesus himself directly raising and answering the question of who he is. So look at verse 18. It says, Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? So what's the word on the street? Who, who do the crowds say? Jesus is praying and he asked the disciples this. Now, by the way, it's interesting that it starts by saying when Jesus was praying. Now, uh, whenever Luke talks about Jesus praying, it's typically in the context of some big revelation that's about to take place or some momentous event. So this is the Luke code, okay? The Luke code is, whenever Luke starts talking about Jesus praying, it should be like an alert to us that something big is about to happen in the story. Typically, some news about Jesus will be given or some major uh, uh, lurch forward in the plot line is about to take place. So here the, the music is now crescendoing. If this were a movie, you know, who, is, who do the crowds say that I am? And notice what the disciples say. There's all kinds of ideas out there. It's uh, all kinds of opinions. Verse 19, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. So the crowds are all over the place. Who's Jesus? I don't know. It depends on who you ask. Crowds have all kinds of ideas. Some people say John the Baptist. So here's the confused among the crowds. 
Here's people who are just, they don't even know. Isn't that John the Baptist or Jesus? I get them confused. And you can see why they would be confused. Jesus and John the Baptist were relatives, according to Luke. Their ministries very much coincided. John the Baptist's ministry launched Jesus' ministry. Uh, so you can see how in an age without televisions, without the nightly news where you can see faces, some guy walks into town and he's preaching the same message that John the Baptist was preaching. And people don't know what Jesus looks like if they've never seen him before. He's not on the newspapers or anything. So, so they're going, now is that John the Baptist? or is that? I get the two guys confused. And I would argue that uh, there's probably a lot of people today who are just equally confused about Jesus. And I think we have to realize that our culture is increasingly biblically illiterate. Uh, I, I watched this, this movie. Have you ever seen this movie called Supersize Me? <laughs> I, I got a kick out of this movie. It, it's sort of this like anti-big fast food kind of movie. And this guy does this documentary where for a month, all he eats, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, is McDonald's for a whole month. And the rule is that if he goes into a McDonald's and they say, can you want to supersize that, he always has to say yes. So that's the movie. And you really do kind of get grossed out. I mean, I was so grossed out that I couldn't eat McDonald's for like, like two days. I mean, it was... <laughs> really, it was bad. <laughs> Maybe three days. <clears throat> so in this movie, though, one of the funny things this guy does is, is he has a bunch of pictures and little cards and, and they're pictures of different faces without the names of the person on it. And he gets a group of first graders and he shows them the flashcards. He's like, who's this? You know, one of them is George Washington. The kids are like, I don't know. One of them is Jesus. A picture of Jesus. The kids don't know who he is. None of the kids can answer. And then, of course, he shows the card of Ronald McDonald and all the kids go, McDonald's! And, you know, the, the point is just how dominant that uh, picture of Ronald McDonald has become in our culture for little kids. But what it also tells me is the generations growing up now, generally speaking, are biblically illiterate. That we don't even know who Jesus is, this person who's had such a profound impact on the course of human history. And people can't even pick out his face. And I just think that as we as a church think about how we do church and the way we do Bible studies and discipleship, we have to start wrestling with that. We can't assume that everybody even knows what Easter's about. And you know, we assume these things because we know and we're here, but I, I bet you there's people in Hingham who are like, yeah, what is that again? And they really don't know. And they're educated people. They're not uh, people who've been living in a cave or something. It's just that our culture has been increasingly sort of sanitized of all things Christian. And so people don't even know the basic facts. So there's the confused. Who's Jesus? Ah, I don't know. Jesus was some guy. Well, I'm not really sure. John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Uh, now this is an interesting response. And it, it just takes me a minute to explain this. It's a little bit more nuanced. Uh, Elijah, as you know, uh, from the Old Testament was a prophet from about the 9th century B.C. And he was a prophet who told Israel to turn away from idols and turn to the true God. And he did great miracles. Well, about... Uh, the 5th century B.C., there was another prophet named Malachi who said that Elijah is going to come back and that Elijah's return will signal the coming of the Messiah in the kingdom of God. So, can you follow that? So, look, in fact, take out your sermon notes for a minute. Just insert in your bulletin. And if you look on the bottom of the front page, it says Luke 9, 18-22 at the top in big letters. Some cool historic-looking font I found. Luke 9, 18-22. Look at the bottom. Here's from Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 1. God says, See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. So there's going to be some guy coming before God comes. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, seeking will come to the temple. 
then Malachi 4.5 is more explicit. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So you have this prophecy that Elijah would come back. And then when you look at the literature between the Testaments, we call this the intertestamental Jewish literature between the Old and New Testaments, there's this theme that Elijah was going to come back and Elijah's return would precipitate the, the kingdom of God and the Messiah. So by the time you, you get to Palestine in the first century A.D. in Jesus' day, this was a common belief that Elijah would return and then the Messiah would come. In fact, you know, Jews still practice this today. I don't know if any of you have been part of a Jewish Seder uh, in a, at Passover, but uh, one of the traditions that's sometimes kept is there's an empty chair at the tables, the Elijah chair, and at the end of the meal, the door is open for Elijah to come in with the idea being that the Elijah will come, the Messiah will come, and so there's still the hope that uh, God's promises will be fulfilled. That's even practiced today. So now, now you get it. Who is Jesus? Some say John the Baptist. Those are the clueless people, and they don't really know. And then there's some who say, oh, this must be Elijah. These guys are more theologically in tune. They say, this must be the guy who comes just before the Messiah comes. So they think that's who it might be. And I would say there's people today... Uh, who not exactly in this way, because this is a very Jewish understanding, but even today in, in other ways, see Jesus as some kind of significant supernatural person, even though they might not ascribe to the whole Christian framework. I, I think of New Age teaching about Jesus. You talk to a New Age person, you know, New Age is the idea that it's kind of Eastern, it's that everything is divine, sort of like the Force in Star Wars. The Force is everywhere. God is everywhere. You're God and I'm God and we just need to get in touch with the divinity within us. It's sort of... Uh, monistic, um, uh, New Age sort of thought. And, and if you talk to a New Ager about Jesus, they'll say, yeah, oh yeah, Jesus was a great man. He was awesome. He, was, he may, maybe even say he was divine. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's a New Ager, and whenever we've talked about Jesus, he has nothing but complimentary things to say. He calls him the Nazarene. He says, oh yes, the Nazarene was a great man. He was wise. He was you know, in touch with the divine. Now, of course, my friend will also go on to say, that anyone could have found what Jesus found. It could have been Jesus from Nazareth, or it could have been Joe from Toledo. But it really doesn't matter, because we're all divine. And so Jesus is significant because he calls us to look within, and, and we can find what Jesus found within himself. And so he was a guru or a leader in that sense. So I think that even today, you can talk to people who have a high, even supernatural, elevated view of Jesus, and he's some kind of very significant person, and yet still be a little bit very much off from the biblical teaching. And then there's a third group. Still others uh, say that he was one of the prophets of long ago that's come back to life. Some people say, well, he's not Elijah, but he's maybe just a prophet, like from the old days. Maybe he's like one, or maybe one was raised from the dead. Who knows? It's a person who spoke for God. He was a person who taught the law of God and brought God's will to bear on the culture. And I, I would say again, I think there's people today who have similar kinds of ideas. You know, who is Jesus? People say, well, he's a good teacher. Do you think he was sent from God? Yeah, I think he was inspired by God in some sense. Then he has things to tell us. He's a moral example of what God would want us to be. And I think there's people who have that kind of view. Uh, that's the view of Islam, is it not? Uh, Islam believes Jesus was a great prophet. In fact, I think uh, he's one of the four great ones. Uh, Moses, David, Jesus, and then Islam would say Muhammad, of course, was the greatest prophet who came about 600 years after Jesus. So Jesus, according to Islam, is yeah, a very important person. Now, they also don't believe that he was actually crucified because they don't believe that if this was a true prophet of God, God would allow something so disgraceful 
to happen to his prophet. And so they believed that Jesus was only apparently crucified or that he was taken up to heaven and someone else was crucified in his place and other people thought it was Jesus. It's sort of a diversity of views uh, among different Islamic groups. But, but again, it's this idea that 20% of the world population today believes Jesus was a prophet. An important prophet, yes, but just a prophet. <clears throat> so you got all these views today. Isn't it interesting there were all these views back then too? I find it fascinating that even the people back then who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, saw the miracles, heard the teaching firsthand, they didn't know. They're kind of confused. They're all over the place, just like we are today. But now in verse 20, Jesus moves from the outsiders in the crowd to the insiders and the disciples. And he turns the question and makes it more personal. But what about you? He asked them. Who do you say I am? And brothers and sisters, I think that's the question that we have to ask ourselves today. It's the question of application for us. Who do we say Jesus is? Yeah, yeah, the Da Vinci Code is going to be out there. There's going to be all kinds of experts on TV and they'll have an argument on Fox News. And, you know, there's going to be all kinds of stuff and you know, it'll be very fascinating and entertaining. But, okay, fine. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter answered, the Christ of God. And according to Luke, that's the right answer. Peter gets the answer right. Which is kind of interesting because it's really one of the first times the disciples get something right in Luke. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, we saw him back in chapter 8 when uh, Jesus was in the storm and they're all freaking out. We're going to die. The storm's so big. Wake up. You know, Jesus is like, where's your faith, guys? And then last Sunday we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Remember we studied that? And Jesus says, you feed these people. And they're like, we don't have enough food, man. We can't buy food. I'm going to get food for all these people. And, you know, so they're always kind of bumbling and whining and they never get it. And suddenly Peter gets it. Oh, you're the Christ of God. And isn't it interesting that the story begins with Jesus praying? So Jesus prays and the lights start to come on. Which tells us that to know who Jesus really is ultimately takes revelation from God. God has to give us light to our hearts. You know, I can preach my, my you know, preach myself out and you can read books and do research, but ultimately there's something wrong with me. I don't get it by nature. I'm spiritually blind is what the Bible says. And so I have to also pray, God, would you help me to get it? Because I'm so dense spiritually. And so we need God to enlighten us to really understand who Jesus is and what it's all about. So maybe that's something you need to pray for yourself. God, help me to understand. I, I just don't get it. It seems like all the other people get it. I don't get it. Whatever it is, I'm not getting God. If there is something to get, let me see it. Reveal it to me. And ask God. If God's there, he can do that. And so test it. You know, pray. Ask God for revelation and insight into who he is. And so Peter says, you're the Christ of God. Now let's unpack that phrase a little bit, the Christ. You know, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? It, you know, Christ is not his last name. It's, you know, so who, what does the Christ mean? It's a title. Uh, it just is the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one, which is actually a translation from the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, which means anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. He's the chosen one. He is God's special servant on the divine mission to be the Savior, to bring about God's kingdom. He's the guy. He's not just someone that the prophet, you know, the other prophets talked about God is going to bring 
his kingdom. The Messiah is the one who brings the kingdom. And so there's this whole uh, body of Old Testament prophecy that looked forward to the time when God was going to bring his Messiah, his special servant, into the world. And if you look on the back of the sermon notes, I put just a few, just three of those important texts. We could go on all morning reading Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. But I just want to give you a flavor. I put some of the more famous ones down here. And what I want you to do is we're just going to read two of these of the three. And I want you to listen for, number one, the mission of the Messiah, establishing God's kingdom. And notice, even in the Old Testament, how the line between the Messiah and God is so blurry. That this idea that Jesus was God really is coming out of the Old Testament. It's not something that the church kind of foisted upon Jesus. Look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. There's the reign of God. And he will be called, here's his name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. <laughs> That's blasphemy, almost, to call a human God, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, these are names for God. Prince of Peace, there's a human name. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it up and holding with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So this is an eternal reign. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Or look at the bottom one, Jeremiah 23. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a descendant of David, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. Here's the name of this king. Yahweh, our righteousness. The Lord, our righteousness. Wow. So this kind of you know, Da Vinci Code claim that, that Jesus wasn't divine, but 300 years after Jesus at the Council of Nicaea, the church kind of made up the idea that Jesus was divine. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, I even think. And the reason the New Testament taught it was because it's coming out of the tradition of the prophets. So who is Jesus? And Peter says, you are the Christ. He finally gets it. And then look what Jesus does. And this was the part when I was studying it. I really wrestled with trying to understand this. Verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them. Not just warned them. Strictly warned them. Don't you dare. Don't you. Not to tell this to anyone. It's like when I talk to my kids. Don't you touch him again. All right? Or you're going to your room. It's like this strict kind of parental chiding. Don't tell anybody what Peter just said. This is a big secret. And as I was studying this, I was like, why is this so secret? Wouldn't you want people to know that the Messiah of God was present? Wouldn't this be the biggest news to tell everybody? These poor people, they're walking around, they can't even get John the Baptist and Jesus straight. The Messiah is right there. I mean, shouldn't they tell everybody? So why not tell all the people that Jesus is the Messiah if that's who he really is? And the answer comes in verse 22. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So verse 21 is the command, don't tell anyone. And then actually in Greek, verse 22 is part of the same sentence. So it's kind of broken up in our English translation, but in Greek it's all one sentence. So verse 22 is the rationale behind verse 21. Don't tell anyone because I'm going to suffer, be rejected, be killed, be raised. So why weren't the disciples supposed to tell anyone? And I think the answer is because Jesus 
yeah, he's the Messiah. They have the answer right, but they probably misunderstand what the Messiah was going to do. If you ask the average Jew in Jesus' day what was the main thing the Messiah was going to do, they would have told you, well, he's going to kick the stinking Romans out of Palestine. (laughs) He's going to liberate Israel from the foreign Gentile dog oppressors, and he's going to throw them out, and we're going to have a sovereign uh, Jewish state once again like we did under King David a millennia ago. That's what the hope was. And so there's a danger, don't you see, that if the disciples around started going, Jesus is the Messiah, He is the Messiah, He told us, He's the Christ, that the crowd would have morphed instantly into a revolutionary army. And they would have taken up swords and sticks and rocks and you know, whatever they had, and they would have put Jesus in front of them, and they would have marched to Jerusalem to launch an assault on the Roman garrison station there. And that's not what Jesus primarily came to do. Jesus says, you've got to understand, guys, I'm a different kind of Messiah. Yeah, you're right, I'm the Messiah. you got the identity right. But you need to understand my mission is not to rally the Jewish leadership behind me, it's to be rejected by them. And it's not to take up a sword against the Romans, it's to willingly allow the Romans to take a sword against me. And you know, I can imagine at this point, the disciples are like, what? <laughs> this is crazy. Because Jesus did come to save us. He did come to liberate us from an enemy, but it wasn't the Romans. It was the enemy of our sin. Because it's ultimately our sin that is our biggest problem. Our sin is what separates us from God. And Jesus came to take our sin upon Himself on the cross so that we could be forgiven by His grace and be reconciled to God. And as I was thinking about this, I said, you know, I wonder if sometimes today we who are evangelical Christians don't make the same mistake the disciples did. You know, who is Jesus? We got the right answer. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ of God. He is God's Son. Correct. We have that in our little doctrinal statements. That's correct. And when the Da Vinci Code comes out, we all go, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. And we're right. I hope that doesn't sound arrogant, but that's accurate. So I think that's right. That's who Jesus is. But I wonder if, as evangelical Christians, we then go on to forget the mission of the one we correctly call Messiah. That his mission was to suffer and die. And sometimes we paint Jesus in more triumphalistic terms. You know, just as the Jews thought that the Messiah would save them from national oppression, I think sometimes we portray Jesus in the media, in TV preachers, in books, Jesus as the one who's going to liberate us from our personal Romans, to use the the imagery here. That Jesus' main job is to solve my personal problems. I think that's how he's peddled today. And just next time you watch some TV preachers or whatever, just listen to how they're portraying Jesus. And so often it's Jesus as the solver of personal problems. Hey, at least the Jews had a national vision. <laughs> you know, ours is so petty and individualistic. It's like, you know, well, Jesus is going to help you. And if you just have faith in him, you're going to get that job that you've really been waiting for. And if you just have enough faith in Jesus, uh, he's going to, you know, change the spouse or give you the spouse that you don't have. Or if you just have enough faith in Jesus, you are going to be cured. Um, or, you know, or whatever vision of the suburban utopia that we have, it's like Jesus will give it to you if you just trust Him. You know, what, what are your dreams? Jesus can make all your dreams come true. You know, there's books and, and articles and things to this effect. And, and I just wonder if we haven't forgotten Jesus' mission. That Jesus didn't come to solve all my problems. Can Jesus do some of those things? Yes, and he blesses us. But sometimes he doesn't. 
And so what happens then when Jesus doesn't solve all my problems the way that I was told by the TV preacher that he was going to do? I start getting angry. I'm like, Jesus, God, I mean, what is going on? Look, I'm being a good person. I'm not drinking. I don't use drugs. I'm, I'm you know, sexually chaste. I go to church. I, you know, I give money at church and I help out in the nursery. And look, you know, I do all these things. And you're still letting this happen to me? That's not how it's supposed to work. I've been doing the right things. Why are these problems still in my life? And we don't understand that. And it's because people, we have very subtly substituted the gospel with religion. The gospel is God's free grace to a sinner who doesn't deserve it. Religion is the idea that if I keep the rules, do the right thing, cross all my moral I's and dot all my moral... It's the other word, whatever. You know, I do the right thing. <laughs> that therefore God will do this for me. It's a way of saving yourself. I'm a good person. God will save me. And what you're really saying is I'm saving myself by my own sense of righteousness, whatever that may be. That's religion. And I'll tell you, there is an eternal difference between the gospel and religion. It's as eternal as the difference between heaven and hell. And religion will carry you down to hell just as much as irreligion and wickedness. Because they are all forms of trust in self. But the gospel says, Jesus died for my sins. I am a wretched sinner. And it is only by His grace that I can be saved not by any good things I've done. And so in the Gospel, I look to a Savior, not who's going to fix all my personal problems, but the Savior who suffered many things, was rejected, was killed, and was raised. And so my life as a Christian is motivated out of a joy and love for Jesus, not out of a sense of quid pro quo with God, that because I've done this, you have to fix this. And so we need to remember, even as evangelical Christians, this very Jesus we're proclaiming and think about the implications of that. Just as He's a different kind of Messiah, He calls for a different kind of Christianity that is sometimes peddled in America. And what is the kind of Christianity that He calls for? Well, it's in verse 23. Then He said to them all, If anyone would come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We're going to talk more about that Thursday night at the Monday Thursday communion service. Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the challenge I want to leave you with this Holy Week. As you go into Holy Week, that's the question I want to leave just kind of resonating in your heart. Who do you say Jesus is? And maybe some of you are like, you know, I really still don't know. I'm not sure. The jury's out for me. And I would just challenge you this week to push some space aside in your schedule to think about it. You know, don't watch American Idol one night this week. You know, the bald guy's going to win. We all know that. So, you know, <laughs> just put, put that aside. Put aside American Idol and take one night, open up your Bible, and just read it. Read Luke. In fact, maybe you don't even have a Bible. If you're new here, take the Bible that you're holding and take it home. We have extra ones. We'll fill up the pews with them. Put a bookmark in Luke so you know where it is. And just go home and take an hour sometime this week and do something maybe that we've never done. We didn't allow us to do this in school. But read the Bible and read about Jesus. Educate yourself and ask yourself, who is this? Who is this person? And then for those of us who are, we call ourselves Christians, believers, maybe we have the right answer to the question, who is Jesus? I would challenge myself and you this Holy Week to think again about the mission of Jesus.
and to think about what does that mean if we follow a crucified Savior, what does that mean for our lives? What does it mean to take up our cross daily and follow Him? That's the question to ponder. How does that have radical implications for what Christianity looks like? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we worship You. Lord, we are so much like those crowds that welcomed You on Palm Sunday when You came in. Sunday they were screaming, Hosanna, blessed comes the King. And then by Friday they were yelling, crucify Him. Lord, we are so fickle. We are the same way. Even those who claim Your name, Lord, are so hot and cold. We We blow hot and cold at the same time. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our worldliness. Forgive us for trying to turn You into a religion. And Lord, help us to grasp afresh this week the power of the Gospel. To recognize that it is by sheer grace that we are saved. And that that grace might lift us to a life of self-sacrifice and service to others because we're filled up with Your grace rather than with our own self-righteousness. And so Lord, I, I pray that You would help us to live out what we profess. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who really is still not sure who You are, Jesus, and they have their doubts and questions and Jesus, if you are real and you're alive as I believe you are, I pray that you would illumine those minds so that they would know from you that you are real and not because of some preacher's argument. And so God, be at work in our hearts. Help us to see the truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you are in heaven interceding for us, the Bible tells us. You are still praying. And because of your prayers, we slowly but surely get it. And so Lord, keep praying for us this week. We ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, open up your hymnals to 316, hymn number 316. And would you stand and we're going to sing, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. <laughs>